Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances from Nerd Wallet, we welcome Anna Helhoski to the show to talk about all things student loans. Stick around, that's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host Dan Maseka. And this week, we've got a guest joining us from Nerd Wallet. We welcome Anna Helhoski. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Anna, you are a an expert at Nerd Wallet on student loans. I guess before we jump into student loans this week, I'd love to hear just a little bit about your background, what drew you that way, and uh, kind of how, how did you end up at Nerd Wallet? Sure. Uh, so I'm a senior writer for NerdWallet. I've been there for nearly eight years, so uh, quite a bit of time. Um, I studied journalism and political science in college, and yes, I took on debt for that degree. Um, I, I covered New York State politics. I was a local news journalist in the New York City metro area and eventually started freelance writing about Dodd-Frank regulations um, for a community banking app. But through it all, I've, I've just always been really interested in consumer rights, and I've had a pretty strong desire to just help people navigate very complicated systems, and that led me to NerdWallet. That's great. Yeah, I, I've seen several times uh, in, in recent history memes and things online and kind of this like Finn Twitter space now that talk about how silly it is that a student at 18 years old can go out and get just exceptional amounts of debt towards an education, but couldn't couldn't get a business loan. And so it definitely seems like an area in uh, in financial media right now that's starting to pick up more attention. And and so I think you're you're probably in, in a hot space. Yeah, I would agree. There's there's a lot of ground to cover and it's there's a lot of complexity to it, but it's it's interesting. Um and it's also just an area that I think people can use a lot of help in and a lot of guidance. Ross mentioned it's crazy that someone so young is facing so much debt. And it's not uncommon for it to be the first time both the students and the parents are exploring this type of lending. Sure. When someone is thinking about applying for student loans right off the bat, is there anything they should be aware of before they just cast their applications out there? Because I feel like you're so pressured to take money so you can say yes to a school, but oftentimes you might do that at the expense of making a good long-term decision. Right. Absolutely. And this is something that we're trying to to figure out the best way to really advise people because you have this dream, right? And this college that is the school that you really want to go to. And for a lot of different reasons, it's not just, oh, um, it's prestigious or, or whatever. It could be, it's close to my home. It could be that uh, this is the school that's close to the place that then I'm going to want to live, or I want to be at a big school, or I want to be at a really small school. There, there are a lot of different factors that go into the college decision um, making process, but a huge one of them does need to be not only the cost of attendance um, and a four-year cost of attendance, uh, if you can estimate that, but also the programs at that school and what those sort of outcomes end up being, who graduates and then ends up getting a job. And there is not a ton of data on this, um, but we do generally try to guide students and their parents toward the college scorecard. Um, and that's from the Department of Education. 
And that includes a whole lot of this kind of information about outcomes. I think that's a great point. And, and uh, in my family, my, my parents are business owners, but uh, neither of my parents finished a four-year degree. I think my dad took some classes on, on business ownership. And, and while they encouraged me to go to college, I don't think that they had any sense of those outcomes either. And, and I ultimately had a good experience, and I don't regret a, a moment of, of the school I went to or what I did. But especially in a family where it might be your first generation going through the college experience, I don't know that you're thinking that way when you're being told, hey, this is what you're supposed to do next, and, and this is kind of the next step in your journey. Absolutely. And first-generation college students have that challenge because they don't necessarily have um, the experience from their parents guiding them who had already been through it all. I was in a semi-similar position. My my father didn't have a ton of education. Um, my mom had two master's degrees. So she was pretty aware of it. But I think I was also a fairly headstrong 18-year-old who just said, well, this is what I want to do. And again, I don't regret it either. And I don't regret the amount of debt that I took on. I, I ended up with about $34,000 of debt. Um, and I did pay it all off. But it, it took a while and there was definitely some bumps and hiccups along the way. And I think that what is really challenging when you're 18 and you're taking on loans is it doesn't feel so immediate. It just feels like, well, this is what I need to do and this is how I get to college. And unfortunately, college is very expensive, right? So for very few families, very few families are going to be able to go to college, send their kids to college without taking on debt. It's such a wildly different experience for Americans as well. So if you have roots that go back in this country a long time, maybe you're a first generation American college student. But even if your parents have college degrees, but were from abroad, it's also a wildly different experience than likely they went through. Right. And the federal aid system is not an easy one to navigate. And and colleges also don't really make it all that easy. Uh, when you get your college acceptance letters, there was a study a few years ago where they are so vastly different from school to school. And the way that aid is presented and the language that it's used uh, can be different from one school to the other. So if you're actually just laying out physical acceptance letters and trying to see your aid packages, it's really, really difficult for parents and and their kids to even take a look at these and try and compare them with any kind of um, in any kind of real way. So how big is this market right now? Because I, I, I see the headline numbers every once in a while, and it's normally, uh, it, I think it, it has approached and exceeded a trillion dollars of, of collective debt at this point. But but is, is that really what we're facing now? Has that continued to grow? And um, I guess kind of what, what what's your assessment of the total debt market, if we want to even call it that? Sure. So the latest figures say that the total U.S. student loan debt equals $1.75 trillion. And that's that's the those are the latest numbers. Um, that's a lot, obviously. It's a big number. Um, it's a very big number. Um, 43 million Americans have student debt. If you take a look at census data, that's somewhere around one in eight Americans. Federal debt outweighs private debt tremendously. Uh, what we do know about student loans is about 92% are owned by the U.S. Department of Education and less than 8% are private student loans. And that's according to um, this academic data for Measure One, which produces a report regularly to measure private loans data. So there are over 43 million Americans with federal student loan debt. And federal student debt alone is $1.61 trillion. Wow. So that, that's really the, the vast majority of that market. It really is. And those with ages 35 to 49 are most likely to hold student debt. And the second most likely is 25 to 
34, but we are seeing a real increase in older borrowers. That is parents who went back to school or they took on debt of their own to help their kid pay for college. And we're also seeing some other things. Women typically borrow a lot more for college compared with men. They also attain more degrees. And federal data also show that Black students borrow more often and in greater amounts compared with all other races and ethnicities. And I mean, just generally, we're seeing that um, it's really a compounding problem because it's not just the debt. Then you've got you know increases in home prices. And, and so sure. uh, you've got huge swaths of Americans right now that we're told you should be able to come out, get a job and afford a home. And, and they're struggling to manage all of these expectations between high rent and housing costs, between high uh, payments on, on their student loans. And so it just doesn't seem like the income is keeping up in a way that, that is allowing that. And I, I consider myself like an elder millennial. I was kind of like at the tail end. Like I, I remember the world before the internet was ubiquitous, but, but uh, you know, so, so I'm in that age category where it, it does feel like we, we were told as a generation, go to school, this is what you need to do. And, and didn't necessarily understand the mechanics of how, how it's going to have to work afterwards and what those, uh, what those payments are going to need to look like and what your life needs to look like to make all of that work. Right. And there are very few guarantees. And, you know, you were talking about income. And, and I think that that's something else to really consider is that going to college for the same degree, multiple borrowers will not have the same outcomes. So it's, it's not going to necessarily work the same for everyone. And it, it's much more difficult, say, for, for a woman uh, to make as much as their male counterpart out in the workplace. So they have this debt, they have the same amount of debt, they have the same degree, and it can take women longer to pay off that debt. And that's just one example. There, there are multiple, multiple demographic kind of breakdowns that you can look at for this. And you mentioned on average, women take on more debt for college too. So that could be an even widening gap over their lifetime in terms of cost. Absolutely. So uh, one of the things that I know you've written on this, uh, we've got a lot of programs out right now that are trying to ease the burden for people cash flow wise, things like income-based repayment. There's a lot of deferrals going on right now. What are some of the downstream effects of that? Because in in theory, that sounds helpful to have an income-based repayment program that's going to limit your cash outflow to something that's hopefully manageable. But that's really not the whole story, if I understand it. Right. So income-driven repayment is a really excellent safety net. It's the only safety net really uh, for borrowers who can't, federal student loan borrowers, that is, that can't afford their current student loan payments. So everyone who borrows a federal student loan leaves school six months after they start you know, paying their bills. And they're set to pay on a 10-year term. Sometimes they've chosen a program where there's a, a graduated um, repayment program. So they start off with smaller amounts uh, to pay each month, and then it gets bigger over time. But you know, a lot of borrowers um, can get to that bigger, bigger amount point, and their income just like doesn't support it. And as you mentioned before, like all these other costs of living that come into effect as well, their income's just not going far enough, right? So then they might say, okay, I can't afford these payments, so let me look for other options. Once you get into an income-driven repayment plan, yeah, you're going to most likely have much smaller, hopefully more manageable payments, but your repayment term is much longer. It ends up being extended to 20 or 25 years, depending on the type of loans that you have. And in that time, you're going to end up tacking on a whole lot of interest. And I mean, just doing the math, if you graduate as a 22, 23-year-old, I mean that means you're ca- you're carrying student loan debt 
in, well into your 40s, if not beyond, to 50. And, yes. and in many cases, and, and we've seen this as well in our practice, you end up with folks that are trying to deal with their own education debt. Then they have kids. They're trying to save for their kids to maybe try not to put them in those same circumstances. Right. And, and you end up in this kind of barbell of paying for lots of education while at the same time. Yeah, and we are seeing that. We are, as I mentioned before, seeing a lot of parents um, in their late 40s and their 50s where their kids are reaching that college age and they still are carrying their own debt. And then they're also going to be taking on more debt. And we do see that um, parents are generally footing most of the bill uh, for for school. An annual study by Sally May and Ipsos found finds that um, parent income and savings alone is something that covers nearly half of college costs. And then parent borrowing covers about 9% of that. So then the rest ends up being usually covered by that student through scholarships, their own borrowing, or, or perhaps their own um, income and savings. But parents do tend to bear the burden. Are there any other vehicles for finding money to pay for school that people are underutilizing? So parent savings, student loans, or the tra- traditional routes that people go, and maybe the school offers some scholarship, but any third-party sites or other government-sponsored sites that you think are out there that people just don't know to look for? Right. So, I mean, first and foremost, families shouldn't even be looking at loans before they start looking at other things like free aid. So for low-income families, that could be a federal Pell Grant. Uh, There are a lot of scholarships out there that are need-based. There are plenty that are merit-based. So that's based on your activities or something that you've completed. And there are a lot of scholarship search tools uh, that are available online to, to find. And obviously, if you have a if you fit some sort of a niche, you're going to probably have a slightly easier time. Um, getting local scholarships is often a bit easier than getting a national one. But maximizing all of that free aid means fewer loans that you're then going to have to later repay. Um, another option, obviously, is work study. Um, if a student is eligible and there are work study jobs available at their school, and schools do have their own institutional scholarships and and grant programs and things like that. But before you go to borrowing, yeah, think about that savings account if a family has one. There are also 529 plans um, that are run by states in which money will grow tax-free as long as you use those withdrawals for education expenses uh, that parents can open and they can contribute for their children. Um, but savings aren't necessarily realistic for all families. So there's still going to be that borrowing that goes on. But there is a hierarchy when it comes to borrowing, and that is that students should first borrow ma- the maximum amount of subsidized loans that are generally for lower income um, and lower middle income students. Uh, first, those don't carry interest while you're still in school. Uh, and then head for the unsubsidized undergraduate student loans, because those will have much lower interest rates than those federal parent loans that are available. So parent plus loans and uh private loans that a parent either takes on for them, you know, takes on themselves or they're co-signing on for their student, those should be the gap fillers and only if you really need it because interest rates are going to be higher and there are fewer options to lower your payments and there are also fewer opportunities for forgiveness. So that that really leads me to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is the cost of carrying this debt. And uh, this has always been a shocking point to me because this is exceptionally secure debt. There's basically no way to get rid of it, right? You can file bankruptcy and not get rid of your student loan debt in in many right. cases. So yes. the fact that it is being charged uh, 
in what has always seemed to me at like higher rates than mortgages and kind of expensive debt. But what do you see as kind of the national average out there? What are federal loans charging these students just to carry them? So interest rates on undergraduate loans are generally going to be much lower than private loans. So the current loan rates for direct subsidized and unsubsidized loans through the federal government is a 3.73% fixed interest rate. That means that it's fixed throughout the life of the loan. Private loans are usually fixed or they might be variable, which, you know, in times of inflation, it's not not such a great thing. But if you have a fixed rate, um, they generally range right now between 3.34% and about 14.99%. So that 14.99, that's that's quite high um, for any loan. So it really does just demonstrate why taking out a federal student loan is the best first option. But for plus loans, it might not necessarily be the same. Um, direct plus loans for parents or, or graduate students is around 6.28%. So it's still like not that bad, but it can certainly be, you know, it's certainly higher than an unsubsidized uh, undergraduate loan. Yeah. If you're taking up into that 14% range, you might as well just put it on your MasterCard, right? I mean, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not the best plan. Yeah. Get those credit card points. <laughs> So are you seeing anything uh, in terms of students making different decisions? Because uh, as, as this is getting written about more, and we've gotten questions for our show about, you know, is the value of the college education still there? Are you seeing alternative paths, whether that's trade schools, whether that's community colleges to kind of split up some of the uh, expense and do some of that locally before you go to a four-year institution? Have any of those trends really taken hold? So we're in a difficult time to talk about trends simply because of the pandemic has, has turned so much up, up on end. Um, enrollment is down across the board. We didn't see quite as much of an enrollment drop at for-profit colleges. So those are your, your typical trade schools generally. Um, we did see a really big hit for community colleges though, which is unfortunate because community colleges often have a lot of the similar alternative and trade programs uh, that are at those private institutions, but you get it a whole lot cheaper. So we are trying to just steer borrowers generally into, or students really, before they borrow, <laughs> into the cheapest possible program that will still give them the outcome that they're looking for. Um, but generally, we're not seeing any kind of like major downturn in the amount that's being borrowed. It was, it was slowed a little bit, though. Um, students are still attending and taking out loans to do in the past couple of years, but we know that colleges weren't really increasing their attendance costs, uh, and we know that enrollment was also down. So overall, fewer people were taking on debt, uh, and the amount of debt per borrower wasn't necessarily increasing either. So I think at the start of the pandemic, private and federal loans were around $1.67 billion, and by the end of last year, they're about 1.75 billion. So it certainly went up, but it wasn't any kind of drastic increase. So students are still borrowing because they have to. Interesting. So uh, I've had this theory, and I'm just curious how this hits your ear when I when I say it. Um, if you look at kind of the population age bands from here forward, you've got declining populations kind of in that, right? You've got, you've got like a big swath at like 20 to 25 right now. And then as you go to 15 and 19, and the, right? So each five-year age ban going forward, we actually have a smaller population than what we've had. Do you think that that will put some downward pressure on college costs or at least maybe slow some of the acceleration there? Because I've kind of had that as a theory, but I don't know if I'm just making that up. So 
this is what I always like to call a crystal ball question <laughs> because there, there's like some signaling there, right? But um, nobody knows for certain what might happen. I think any private, smaller private colleges that are just generally more expensive than their public counterparts are more likely to struggle um, if we are seeing, which we are expected to see, just a declining population in um, your typical, and I will say that, you know, first right off the bat, your, your typical um, younger college age student. Uh, so I think a lot of those schools might struggle and, and it'll be a toss up whether they can really afford to be lowering their costs. Public college costs are, are shaped by a lot of different things. And, and a lot of that is also just how much um, investment the states put into them. And we've seen decades of states disinvent, disinvesting in their schools and then tuition having to be increased. And then when they put more money back into their schools, the tuition doesn't really go down. Um, so that's some of why you've seen a lot of costs increase in the last few decades. Um, but it's going to just be tricky to tell. I, I don't know that Ivy League colleges are necessarily going to have to be um, competing with any of the smaller schools in any other way that they normally do right now. So I don't know that their costs are suddenly going to get much lower. Um, we, it, it's, it's tough to tell. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I realized it was a loaded question when I asked it. Yeah, I mean, there's also the other possibility that we will just see more what are considered non-traditional students, and by non-traditional, usually older, independent students uh, at attending colleges. Um, but that really uh, depends what happens in the workforce and whether more employers are going to be requiring uh, more degrees. I think we've seen the trend of, at least I know locally, a lot of employers taking away requirements for college degrees. I yeah. believe I'm in the state of Maryland. The state recently announced that they were going to remove that requirement from a lot of state jobs. And anecdotally, as I've been working with families and doing college planning, I've seen more and more choose to de-emphasize college savings just as they're forecasting the potential trend that students are going to be less and less likely to choose to take on degrees. And they would rather have a pool of money that they're saving that could be used for something, even if it's not college. And you can understand that, but the facts do remain the same, that having a degree, having an undergraduate degree, having just some college has really positive effects on your overall earnings. You may have some level of an opportunity cost by attending college and not immediately going into the workforce, you know, in those first few years, possibly, but then your earnings just like increase so much more in the next 10, 20 years uh, than your you know, counterparts in your same age group that didn't attend school. So there still is that return there that students should consider. Um, and it, it generally increases with the more education that you have. But I would also say that completely depends on your program, whether you're getting a graduate degree. It depends on um, the market for that. It depends on how necessary that degree is. Um, and uh, it remains to be seen what's going to be happening with grad degrees. They have gone up in the last 10 years in terms of attainment. So whether or not employers are going to continue to require that level of degree is also up in the air. Yeah. It, the other place where I see the data represent is just the power of the degrees in unemployment statistics. Um, and if you look at like the 2008 crisis, folks without a degree at all or, or you know, high school or below... Uh, the unemployment numbers were just 
outrageous where if you'd had the college degree, if you had the advanced degrees, your unemployment level was just much, much safer. Um, and so even if it's not as much directly related to even the earnings power, mm-hmm. the ability to find work consistently, I mean, I think that is a as somebody that's thinking about defensive ways to think that that is a very important thing to realize as well is that it can protect you in in a bad environment. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned the 2008 crisis, but I think we've also seen this in the last two years. Those who had um, higher degrees, and and by that I, of course, mean, you know, higher than a high school diploma, fared better during the worst downturn, uh, economic downturn of the pandemic. So as you kind of look forward, is there anything in particular that you're looking at, data that you're excited to see come out? I, I don't know if that's the right even word for it, but um, you know, as, as you look at this space, what are you continuing to study and, and, uh, and, and looking for? Yeah, it's wild. There's a lot going on. Um, I think on, on the front end of things of just entering college, we are looking to see if those enrollment numbers are going to tick back up because they have decreased. Um, and we don't know if, if a lot of students were just taking a gap year or so uh, from high school to college um, in these in this incredibly unusual time, and if they will then return to school. So that remains to be seen. Um, we are just seeing kind of nascently that some of the applications for the FAFSA, which is a free application for federal student aid, that's how you access all types of federal aid from Pell Grants to federal loans, we have seen that those applications are kind of starting to return to pre-pandemic levels, which is a really good sign because completing a FAFSA just has, it is a signal that you will likely then go on to college. Um, I'm really interested to see how completion plays out as well, because that's one of the trickier things here. If you take on debt and you attend school and then you don't get a degree, you don't complete that program you're in a much worse position than when you started in a lot of ways. And we see that those tend to be the borrowers that default on their student loans. And getting a default just puts you in a, in a very bad way. Your wages are garnished. Um, your social security can be garnished. You're, um, you'll end up facing a lot of collection fees and, and things like that. So I'm definitely interested to see about completion. And then, of course, debt cancellation and whether or not it happens. And um, there's been a federal student loan payment pause for the last two years. It was just extended for a sixth time through the end of August. So we are watching and waiting to see if that will be turned back on. That's a lot to keep an eye on. We really appreciate you joining us on the show today. We're going to put a link to your uh, Nerd Wallet page so folks can keep up with your great work and uh, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. For all of our folks out there, if you've got questions for our show, check your balances at Outlook.com is the email address. We appreciate everybody tuning in, and we will catch you all next week. <music>